0: You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and we are proud to bring you a collection of podcast interviews conducted with the director, Tom Harper, and his crew behind the new Amazon Studios film, The Aeronauts. First up, we have an interview with Lee Walpole, where he goes into the sound of the film. Then we have an interview with Louis Morin, who describes the visual effects. After that, we then move over to Christian Huben who talks about the production design, and then Alexandra Byrne, who goes into detail about the film's costume design, culminating in our final interview with the director himself, Tom Harper. Three, we hope you two, enjoy these one. interviews.
1: To understand the weather is to prepare our world for floods, droughts, famines. I ask for funding for my own expedition into the skies.
2: You've been assigned a responsibility to change the world. You have to meet it. Find another madman to get in a balloon with. Or perhaps that woman.
0: All right, everyone. You are listening to the next Best Picture Podcast. I am your host, Matt Neglia. And right now I am being joined by the sound supervisor and re-recording mixer, Lee Walpole. Lee, how are you doing today?
3: I'm very good, thank you.
0: Excellent, excellent. Glad to hear it. So. I want to just start off by actually uh, mentioning that you have a very impressive uh, body of work attributed to your name. Um, you have worked on a lot of prestigious uh, films, a lot of them also dealing also with uh, similar time periods, a lot, lot, lot of period movies as I went through uh, the filmography here. And The Aeronauts is, once again, yet another period piece. I'm wondering if that's by design, if you, know, you specifically get a call. How, how did you ultimately come on board the project for this one?
3: um so i came on board aeronauts because i've got a long-running relationship with tom harper who i've been working with the director who i've been working with since uh peaky blinders was, was when we met and mm-hmm. uh, we got on well on peaky and then went off and did um, a couple of films with him and then the uh, the war and peace miniseries which he did um and then while we were doing war and peace tom was reading falling upward which was the uh, the book that uh, this film ultimately is based on so uh, that's when the kind of the, the kernel of the idea uh, was yeah finding its roots
0: absolutely and I mean you also worked with him on Wild Rose earlier this year which um, is a film that uh, I I, I want to just say for the record I personally love that movie <laughs> I, I really hope that that movie uh, finds an audience out there soon uh, but your work with him on Aeronauts is uh, definitely the most ambitious project I think that you guys have ever tackled together Right.
3: I think that's fair to say, yeah. Yeah,
0: there's there's a lot of uh, elements that are going on in this one, especially because it is ultimately about the weather. Um, So in that regard, I mean, what would you say was maybe the most unique challenge that you faced uh, working on aeronauts?
3: Uh, I guess uh, as a project, one of the biggest challenges was the fact it was complete world creation. So um, aspects of it were filmed in camera with live stunts, and then there's, you know, a fair degree of, Blue screen as well, and uh, into in cutting, and it's, it's it's you know creating the world behind that that joins all the dots, really. Um, and the balloon itself um, is a, a gas balloon rather than the hot air balloons that, that we're familiar with in this day and age. So so the balloon flight itself doesn't have a burner or anything going on. Um, it's it's silent for want of a better word. Um, So Tom was keen to to find the sort of peace and majesty of being up in a balloon. Um, But at the same time, I had to find a way to give the sense of continuous ascent and movement. Um, So so for that, we we, we constructed a a deceptively complex air sound, which was layers and layers of wind um, playing of all different characters, buffeting, whistling, um, all, all moving around on their own paths within the sound field that, that yeah you don't necessarily instantly register but it gives this subliminal sense of, of continuous movement um and then we had to come up with the sound for the uh, balloon itself um which we constructed of four key components we broke it down as which is the uh, the basket the um the instruments that surround the basket the the and riggings and the uh, the balloon itself um and so for each of those we sort of set out to to make the best uh best recordings bespoke sounds that we could for it um so we started off with the basket and um you know obviously a basket had been made for the film so we uh went along to do some recording on that and it had a, a very distinctive sound um which you know all, all the wicker kind of moving against each other an extremely complex and unique creaking sound uh but the first thing production needed to do was obviously quieten that down so they could capture clean dialogue so yeah we did a a, a small sort of uh, live foley shoot let's call it on on location before the uh, basket was then treated with a uh, sort of PDA glue mix which was designed in in um, collaboration with the production sound mixer to to sort of mold the thing together and actually stop all that creaking um, well wow. so I had I had a tapestry of that that stuff and then commissioned my own basket, which was a, a five foot by five foot basket um, built by a, a Welsh coffin maker as it happens um which was delivered to my studio in in soho in london and uh, sort of squashed it down into the basement getting wedged in the stairway uh part way down and cut it into foley stage and uh, and so the artists uh, boom could actually climb inside that basket perform along it uh, along to picture inside it um and then we had to tackle the rigging so we kind of built our own rigging by buying various ropes that uh, were all chosen wow. for their, their sonic merit and then uh, setting that up outside uh, on a kind of uh, wooden bar contraption to spin and rub and uh, and creak. Uh, And then finally, you know, the balloon itself, uh, which we bought various silks and and fabrics, which we uh, shifted and and manipulated and and made sort of the sound of the balloon to go above your head, which um, I guess leads me on to the fact that we mixed the film in uh, Dolby Atmos as well, which was uh, a wonderful thing and couldn't have been more... Suited to this project, because um, it meant that you could take those four key components, put the creeks along the side of the room and in the front of the room um, the the rigging and the balloon itself exist above your head and uh, and the kind of the instruments are tinkling away on the basket. we could uh, you know move around the, the surrounds and the front speakers corresponding shot to shot to picture, which I guess ultimately enabled us to give uh, a sort of first person perspective to the viewer, putting them inside the balloon. Uh, along with our characters for the journey.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it's pretty in-depth and involved work uh, for a multitude of different reasons. But the one thing that also like really struck me uh, while watching it is the fact that there is a degree of um, simplicity and constriction, if you will, um, to the fact that it is, uh, for the majority of the movie, this one set. And I'm wondering that, like, when you approached the project and you saw what was on the page and what was ultimately going to be uh, Harper's vision for having this being um, one set but surrounded by the elements, did you find that to be freeing? Did you find it to be uh, constricting, as it were? Or, like, did you feel like you had a lot of room to play with?
3: Yes, because ultimately they experienced so many events along the way in the balloon. So, you know, you, mm-hmm. of course, there are sections of the film where where they're not kind of, you know, in the middle of the, the elements, but along the way, we, uh, we, we hit a storm quite early on in the film, which is our first major set piece. Um, and that's quite a sustained sequence, I think sort of seven minutes, uh, yeah. where, they, you know, we really got to open up and, and go to town as it were with, with sounds. Um, and and then you've got the, the butterfly swarm as well, kind of uh, further on through the film and about giving too much away. And you know, by the time that they, they reach the, the peak of the summit and the, and the balloons frozen over. So, so there's a lovely sort of evolution that one can tell through sound. And uh, yeah, using sound to advise the, the viewer of of what the, what quality of air that they're moving through at any given point. So even if it's not one of those big sequences we're we're trying to tell, what are they getting into? So, um, uh, you know, by the time they reach the summit, we've had this kind of this this, this these four key elements I described earlier interplaying together. Um and then, then they kind of reach reach this height of thirty six thousand feet and, and suddenly all of that closes down. The sound field becomes much smaller and I moved on to uh sort of subharmonic uh rumble tones essentially. Um and quietened it all down and then um And then really focused on on sharp spot effects so this is sort of the section where felicity uh climbs up the the balloon to to release the gas valve um yeah so 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 the evolution meant meant there was always something something new to do Mm -hmm. design and to find and, and a new story to tell along the way
0: do you find that it's easier to add pieces as you go or do you like to add in a lot of like elements and then strip away um, so that this way, it's not so much like an onslaught of sound, you know what I mean?
3: Yeah, no, I, I I prefer to to have more there and strip away throughout the mix. I mean, that's kind of the beauty of of having the, the dual role I have of of sound supervisor and re recording mix, so you know I'm completely across all aspects of the material that are uh, that are in the film and uh, and I've pre-mixed all those aspects, and then it's it's far easier to start pulling back throughout the course of the final mix rather than sitting there trying to create uh, ultimately what I wanted to be bespoke sounds and, and very complex sounds. It, it wasn't really a film where you could just tap stuff into into your library and you know come up with what you're looking for. Most things had to be really thought about and, and designed specifically for the picture. Um, obviously, there was a, a degree of uh, having to add going on while we were mixing because uh, with a film of this nature, the VFX was flooding in up until the last minute. So our, our final recut was on the penultimate day of the final mix. Uh, wow. And, and you know, the the, the shots of the, the section I was just talking about where Felicity's climbing up um, sort of three days before the end, the ice wasn't really in there and just suddenly all the shots are coming in and there's always ice movement and uh, tinkling and falling that wasn't there before. And and VFX like that ultimately a, a large part of the cell, in my opinion, comes from, from the sound being there, you know, and, and absolute detail anchoring all these things to the screen. And, um, and with all that stuff as well, I was very keen to... Uh, get into uh, a cause and effect story, which I suppose ties back to what you were saying of, of having this confined location. I was always trying mm-hmm. to think about the, the bigger picture beyond what you're seeing. So if uh, Felicity's pulling on a cord or, uh, you know, a, a line in the basket, what's that actually doing above our head? And, uh, you know, if she's stamping on the balloon on the ice, what does that mean for what's below us? So I was always trying to expand the sound field uh, to, to to tell those Stories.
0: Yeah. No, absolutely. Is there anything uh because I I, I talked to a couple of sound people and so do uh, some of my colleagues here, and uh i we've noticed there's been like sort of like not not a trend necessarily, but some sound people like to uh leave hidden gems, if you will, or little winks or nods, I don't know, in jokes, things like that in the mix sometimes. Is there anything uh without obviously destroying the credibility of the film, is there anything yeah. In the Aeronauts that uh, particularly uh, you threw in there as like a subtle, uh, you know, like a subtle message or anything like that? Or or maybe even not even as a joke, but something that you thought might have been really neat? Uh,
3: not hugely. I mean, the one thing that's in there, which is the final sound that I put in, is uh, is a blackbird in the field after the uh, after balloon lands, which is a sound I put into everything I do. It's my favorite of, of the bird songs. And uh, yes, yeah, so everything I've done has got a blackbird in it. And yeah. Um, It was kind of, you know, half past 10 on the final day, just about to uh, call it a day, and suddenly had a a panicked moment of realization that I hadn't put my own calling card in. So, yeah, that's the last sound that went in.
0: (laughs) I hear you. I hear you. Uh, So you've done these uh, works now with Tom Harper. You said before, working with him on Peaky Blinders, uh, Wild Rose recently, and now with the Aeronauts. Uh, I'm curious to know, like, what what else is uh, upcoming for you? I know that you also... uh, did some work on the on the crown obviously um and that just recently launched and it's phenomenal might i add <laughs> um, but uh you know we, we we're just really curious to know where else we can uh hear your work in the future
3: uh so for me i'm currently working on a, uh an adaptation of a christmas carol for uh for fox network which is um guy pierce playing scrooge um and that's taking me through to december then i'm actually straight back into the crown because they're, they're filming it two seasons back to back so season four starts for me in January. And uh and then after that I've got a, a show for Amazon a ten parter called The Power, which I'm I'm very excited about as well.
0: That's awesome.
3: Yeah. and, and nice different projects as well. I mean, you know, Christmas Carol and uh, Crown I, I guess can fall into your uh, your um the fact you've identified I do a fair bit of period work and then then the power is a a more kind of dystopian uh imagination of the the future. Um so yeah I I, I very much like like the challenge going from project to project of having a a new world to create and to build and and that was what was so so lovely about the aeronauts was it was yeah complete world creation like nothing I've ever done before required a ton of imagination and uh yeah trying to make sure it's one of those strange things where ultimately I guess viewing it you kind of know what you think stuff should sound like or or Mm -hmm. for instance I was just talking to uh christian uh the the production designer the other evening who i hadn't actually met before and can he hear this commenting on uh a section in the film when, when felicity's on the balloon and, and it's making kind of wob sounds as he described it as uh as her arms kind of bang into it and uh and he's saying what a great job the uh, production sound mixer did of capturing that sound because that's exactly what it would sound like and i had to say well none of that was on camera and that's my uh imagined version of it and uh, so it's quite gratifying that, uh, you know, your imagination takes you down the uh, the correct avenues, let's say, sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: hey, listen, I love what you said about world creation, because you're right. It's all green screen for the most part. It's not like they actually went up in an actual air balloon thousands of feet above the sky. So there's a lot of stuff that requires a bit of imagination on your part. And I think that it is highly immersive. And I think that when people watch it, they'll be along for the journey as well. So credit to you and your work there
3: great stuff thank you very much
0: absolutely thank you so much lee for the time i really appreciate it
3: my pleasure
0: take care all right take care
3: are you miss red
0: i need to make studies off the air i need you to fly us higher than anyone
1: has ever been you even have a balloon not yet will you help me you're incredibly late are you ready
2: you have no conception of how ready i am today
3: history will be made
4: This pressure is changing fast. And so it begins. Hold on!
0: Hey, Louie, how are you doing?
5: Good,
0: good. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here and for chatting with me today. I really, really appreciate it. Very much looking forward to talking about your work on The Aeronauts, a film that is heavily built around its uh, visual effects work. And you're the uh, visual effects supervisor uh, for this film. Along with uh, for a multitude of other movies, uh, such as Arrival, uh, which is a we're big fans of that film around here. (laughs) Uh, You also worked on uh, Wonderstruck. You worked on uh, Source Code. Uh, You worked on a a lot of films. In fact, actually, I've started to notice a bit of a trend, actually, in that you work a lot with um, uh, some of the same uh, filmmakers uh, from time to time. I, I do believe this is. The first time you've worked with uh uh Tom Harper is that correct yeah, yeah, so how did you uh ultimately come on board the project then
4: it happened uh on, on the tarlanes movie like uh you know it was amazon producing and mm-hmm. you know, i did um uh the bob Dylan movie with him uh so it was my second time with uhtarlannes and and uh the producer uh to talk to me on set and say, yeah oh, we have this project blah 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 oh so that's cool. And I started to read the script early, and then met uh, Tom Harper uh, on my way to the BAFTA for arrival, and that's that's how it all st- started. And we hit it off, and uh, we had like uh, a weekend uh, meetings in London to uh, say to discuss like uh, with all the heads of the department, say how oh, we're gonna make this film, you know? Yeah. And uh, so we came up with a plan. And the film was, like, uh, green-lighted, like, a year after. And here we are. So I'm done. <laughs> and hopefully everybody likes it.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Um, I, I have to say, like, some of the visuals in this movie were, like, outstanding. I had the... Uh privilege of seeing it on the big screen at its world premiere at the Telluride Film Festival. And oh, that's cool. Yeah, no, it was great. I mean, you know, this is definitely a wild thrill ride, and a large part of that is because of the visual effects that you and your team uh, provide over to it. Uh, I'm curious to know, like, what was it like um, in working with uh, Tom Harper, whose previous credits were never as visual effects heavy as this one was? Um, what what was that like kind of coming in as someone who's had a lot of experience working with a filmmaker who hadn't really dipped his toes in at least this deep before. Yeah. Uh,
4: you know, I have had, uh, a couple of experiences like that. You know, I, I would, they needed never the same, like, uh, uh, you never had, uh, done any visual effects movie, just a few shots mm-hmm. here and there on his movies, you know, it was like, yeah, it was a whole filmmaker, uh, Tom Harper, uh, was very different, you know, uh, because he was really fluid uh, to a level that I say, oh my God, I'm, he's going to make me pull my hair till the very end, which he did, you know, because he was like looking at the shots, looking at the key, the uh, the look at the air, like the details that, you know, usually a director wouldn't really bother, would trust us to do. So you have the sharp eye, you had a good knowledge of what he wanted, and... And also, what I like about him is that I, I could, you know, uh, pinch him and just say, "Hey, uh, let's just try this direction here and there." Uh, and he was open to to ideas, which you know ultimately uh, shows up on, on the screen.
0: What was one idea that you uh, that you may have pitched to him that did find its way on the screen? Would you say?
4: Uh, there's many. You know, it's just it's just in the details, like sure uh, we. For example, just like a, a simple example, like the the he was adamant, like he wanted to shoot the actors in the, in the real balloon. So he the he got the money to build the real balloon, and he got uh, away with putting the two actors in, in a real uh, alien balloon. You know, uh,
5: mm-hmm. so
4: that shot is the beginning of the most expensive shot in the movie, which is like uh, them over uh, London. You know. Yeah, and and the shot lasts I don't know two minutes, it's like twenty visual effect shots of four seconds, five seconds. It's just trying to find like direction and and where the balloon was shot is has, has nothing to do with London and the sunrise, sunset. So we had to flop the shot. We had to find a way to uh, cut the shot to get out because we were supposed to be in continuity.
5: Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
4: you know all all those like flopping the shot. Trying to design, like to see uh, the milestones of London uh, were suggestions that, you know, weren't quite exactly planned uh, uh, when they shot back like, in the chopper with the actors. Yeah. They were stuck with the reality, you know.
0: I always find that with uh, visual effects heavy films that the VFX teams are so integral to the storytelling. And they are often working very, very hard all the way up until the last minute, generally speaking, to turn in uh, the final shot. And I'm wondering, uh, you know, with the unique challenges that every project always provides, even with years and years and years of experience, uh, what on the aeronauts for you was the most challenging? But also, if you want to look at it in a positive way, what was the most opportunistic?
4: I've I've been in the business for a very, very long time. And. Yeah, I remember, like at the beginning, like uh, we're talking, like the, the digital nightmare of like doing a bear and fire, jumping in the water, and uh, that was like the most difficult thing to achieve in CG. Uh, this has been done, but I I didn't realize that our complex clouds uh, formation can uh, can be, and you know, so trying to to design the the when they they come out of the the clouds. Uh, these shots like were like a tremendous amount of uh, rendering, tremendous amount of like detail and, and, and we needed those shades like to, to go to the highest level of shades because the light is dispersing into it and, and just like bouncing all over uh, this kind of like misty formation. Uh turns out like uh, it was a huge, huge challenge and uh, that was one of the last shots that we delivered uh uh in the movie. So there was this, this, this stress also that having an audience watching the movie and just make sure that never, ever anybody question, oh, that looks like a blue screenshot. That doesn't look real. We wanted them to be immersive in it, to believe in it, to have vertigo looking down. And yesterday there, there was this lady that came to me after the screening and, and said, uh, oh, you know, I have vertigo. I have to close my eyes. Uh, so I said, well, that's great. That's exactly
0: what we <laughs> wanted to achieve, you know? Some of the uh, shots, especially in the third act, um, the scale of it all is just so big that, yeah, if you have a fear of heights or something, oh, man, <laughs> forget about it. Yeah. You ain't going to be able to survive that third act. <laughs>
5: yeah.
0: It, it, it's really anxiety-inducing, and I think you guys do a really good job in terms of providing... Um, the level of height of uh, the scale of it all like I was saying before um you have to get certain wide shots where the clouds just stretch out for miles uh, away from the balloon it looks yeah. like at times yeah and you're doing that all from scratch like you d- you don't have any um you don't have anything that's being shot necessarily on that level it's all done in green screen right we
4: did yeah well we had like a, in our like meeting like the workflow was like I wanted like to 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 shoot as much as possible real material and uh, there's a camera system it's called a multi-array so you can put six camera that generates like a huge uh, plate and i forced those guys to put the 8k camera so you know so we have 48ks of uh, material uh, per frame uh, and we went up there to shot uh, we shot like uh, in louisiana and and based on that we create kitted environment 360 environments like up to 15 of them yeah and we use this this uh, f- frame store software called farsight which is like augmented reality and with the ipad on set you, you select your cloud and you just move your ipad everywhere and you see top bottom uh below uh so we were prepared like for the ep to get like the proper lighting for the actors to see and, and know and understand where they are. Uh, and all this also i went in south africa again to shoot more clouds uh, i don't know if you remember the butterfly sequence all the clouds of the butterfly sequence are like uh, real Yeah!
0: Oh, wow it's
4: just like the challenge of stitching them together because everything is moving to catch 260 degrees at the same time is impossible but this one really worked and we had like a, a, quite a few actually beauty shots of the movie that were uh, shot uh, uh, by us, you know, like with the oxygen tank uh, up at uh, 29,000 feet with 27,000 feet. We went with the chopper. So, yeah, there's live elements. But to tell you the truth, there were references most of the time because we had to resort to CG for continuity, you know, and dialogue. Imagine like the whole movie is like in a basket. So,
0: yeah, yeah, pretty much.
4: continuity to achieve that was a nightmare
0: yeah no i i I mean i can imagine it could be a daunting uh task for anyone to uh tackle uh, on a film such as this for sure uh there's a number of set pieces in the movie i know you talked earlier about uh the one shot overlooking london uh was there any other uh sequence in the film that stood out Either in a positive way or a negative way? Uh, you know, something that you guys just found yourselves keep, you kept coming back to over and over and over, reworking it, retweaking it, things like that?
4: Well, we had the, we haven't discussed that, but the whole the fair show was just like a visual effects ensemble. I mean, they had like 200 actors, but mm-hmm. I mean, it, has to, it had to feel like 15,000, you know, across. Yeah. Like and a fluid camera moving 260. 20- Degree and L. The, so, all this was also a big challenge because we had to build a stadium. You know, it was just partly done and, uh, and fill it with like uh, actors, you know, digital extras. Uh, and in the fair, like tent environment, it became um, every shot, it's a period movie. So, you know, camera starts, the film starts, it's the visual effects. And the film ends with the visual effects. Maybe mm-hmm. just like a cutaway moment uh, with them. And even there, like there's always like a period something to to clean up in uh, non-VFX movie. That turns out that, you know, 80% of the film is uh, went through the visual
5: effects department.
0: Yeah, no, and it definitely shows, uh, especially like I said, if you see it on a big screen, uh, I, I can definitely get a sense of that while watching it. It's not for for a movie that feels very enclosed and intimate there is still a lot really going on outside of that little basket. <laughs> yeah. So yeah,
5: indeed. credit
0: to you and to your team for uh Thank making you. all of that come alive and immerse us like you said before. Mm-hmm. Curious to know uh what's the next challenge? Uh what what else uh are you and your team going to be uh looking at next?
4: I I don't know like I because I I did uh uh the house of the clock and its walls before and yeah. you know, for a couple of months i was like on two projects at once so i'm kind of happy to have some time off but I oh, do okay scripts you know like uh and uh, some some directors that of the past called me back and maybe interested to team up so
5: mm-hmm. you know, i'd
4: like to do uh creature stuff you know something uh uh, with animation, because I, I really found like uh, I discovered like a true pleasure of working on Arrival and designing the personality of the aliens. Uh, I said, "Oh, this is kind of cool." So to add this to visual effects uh, in a project, I mean that's my post-it to the universe. Like I'd like to to get like something uh, in that style.
0: Well, that's really exciting to hear uh we really really much look forward to seeing uh what else you uh bring to the screen and uh thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and good luck to you man
2: thank you very much all right have a good one take care have you even been in a balloon do you have experience
3: of lack of oxygen to the brain
1: what have we to lose our lives this is gonna be more important than our lives
3: have you noticed it's completely silent
5: We are now
1: higher than anyone has ever been. Still no sign of them. The gas release valve is frozen.
5: Stay alive. Stay alive.
0: Hello, everyone. I am being joined right now by the production designer for the film The Aeronauts, Christian Huban. Christian, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm good,
5: thank you. Very very
2: good, thank you
0: very much. Awesome. Uh, First thing I want to kind of just... You know, dispel here a little bit for our listeners. Uh, You have previously worked as an art uh, director and also just in general, like on the uh, art department on a lot of films. But The Aeronauts is your first uh, credited uh, film as a production designer. For those that may not just be too familiar with what the jobs entail, could you just like enlighten some of our listeners uh, as to what goes into being a production designer?
2: Absolutely. Um, A production designer um, is really responsible for almost everything that is seen in front of the camera other than the costumes and the the cast so the whole environment that they're in whether it be um you know the set the set dressing and all of those choices that set the tone of the movie Um, so i suppose as a production designer distinct from an art director you are sort of heading up that vision you're you're kind of you might discuss it with the director and work out precisely what they want to see on, on screen. But after that, it's kind of down to you and you would then disseminate that vision to your team of hopefully a team of art directors and other art department personnel. So I've worked within that world, but there's quite a distinction between being a supportive character in that and being kind of,
5: the
0: main guy yeah no i could i could definitely imagine and there is a bit of a uh, unique opportunity with the aeronauts in the sense that large majority of the film takes place inside of a, a, a balloon you know up in the sky so when thinking of that right away i mean obviously you are involved in everything that goes into the balloon itself uh absolutely but th- then beyond that, like when they're up in the air, do you have any say in terms of what goes beyond the balloon or is that more the visual effects crew? You know what I mean? Like, where does it come into play there?
2: That's a really interesting question because the sky itself is such a huge character in, in the movie. Um, when uh, when myself and David, my co-designer, uh, the two of us sat down and, and were pitching the idea for this to Tom Harper, we, we knew we'd have an opportunity to meet him. We thought, what's the best way to sort of have a discussion point with him? And, and I drew up this, this um, what we we called the sky chart, and it was a sort of diagram which strangely is echoed in the movie, um, the moments where you see the height of the balloon and its time on the journey. Yeah. Those ideas were derived from charts that were made at the time of balloon journeys but we did our own one that was based entirely around the script and what that does of course is you know you see bottom left hand side you see them rising up from Vauxhall gardens and as they go up they go through the storm and so on reaching a peak of course at the at the snow and ice scene at the very top and then descending downwards to sort of bottom right you can picture that sort of graph but in each case and each moment in that drawing, we, we sort of did little cutaways to different scenes. So scenes like the butterfly scene, scenes like the storm, the snow and ice beats of the story, um, Amelia hanging onto the rope and trying to swing herself back in, and then finally hurtling back to earth. So the kind of re-entry scenes. Um, and I suppose in each case, we had a view about what each, each state should be. So there were some beautiful images, for example, in reference material at the time of Glacier's flight. And they show a balloon high up in the heavens above all the clouds. And you can actually see stars and shooting stars in the sense that they were almost like the first space travelers. So the question is, you know, do you accentuate reality and say, let's show some stars, even though you can't see stars in the daylight, even at Mm 37,000 feet? We want to see them, you know. They're more theatrical, they're more interesting. So we had a view about all the states at all the altitudes, whether it be the snowfall as they come down, or the butterflies, or the storm, or or any other condition. And obviously, after that, once you've had those discussions and you've found reference images of of clouds and such like. Uh, yeah, at some point you have to let that go to visual effects and say, let's go out and shoot some skies and see what we can find and use the very best material of what we what we find for real to make the movie feel as authentic as possible. So, yes, it's a combination of your your vision of what you think it should look like and then the way the sky naturally gives you these gifts, these happy accidents, these big cloud banks that you couldn't have designed, but they, they offer what you're looking for in terms of the narrative in that moment.
5: Yeah. Uh,
0: we, we've been told that uh, there was a desire to want to shoot everything as realistically as uh, possible. And to do that, a large portion of the balloon has to be built. So I'm, I'm curious to know um, how much of it actually was built. Uh, was it just a basket? Was there other extensions put on, onto it? Uh, how much did your department come into play there?
2: We built every single bit of the balloon and made it fly to carry our actors up into the sky it was a real 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 flying machine
0: (laughs) oh my lord
2: oh yeah i know it's it's it it took me aback as well when 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 david and i first met tom and he we'd been warned that he was quite insistent on building a real balloon and our our first instincts were you know if we're making a movie about space shuttle we're not going to build a real space shuttle and fly it into space we're going to do what we do in movies
5: you know and, and make it up
0: but then again you then hear stories about jim cameron wanting to build a half of the titanic and you think to yourself "Uh yeah. oh yeah. <laughs> this in is English, possible
5: you know and, you, and then you go wow
2: what kind of guy are we dealing with here you know so, <laughs> tom,
5: tom is tom is,
2: is far from impractical he's very very practical and sure and his insistence on this became absolutely the it was the touchstone the sort of cipher of authenticity that we needed uh, to, to from which we leapt into different you were right these different sections of sets and scenery that we built but they always had at the center of them this real balloon that really flew that looked and felt authentic um as that we had as a reference point so whether it was informing us to say remain with an inflatable set for the summit of the uh, balloon which the sequence where uh, amelia has to go and release the gas from the top of the balloon or whether it was Um, guiding the work that Louis Moran did on the visual effects, you know, we all of us had as a key reference that real balloon, and how it behaved in the sky as as something we could always absolutely return to. So it meant we kept ourselves in reality. We kept it feeling plausible and authentic. And, And Tom was, I realized, you know, I had a something of a Damascene moment, a kind of epiphany where I think, yeah, you know what, he's right. He's absolutely right. This is the way to make this movie um even if you know even if the the sum total of shots that you get out of that real balloon doesn't amount to apparent value for money the value of it in every other thing that was made for the movie is is immeasurable
0: yeah no i i can definitely understand that for sure not every scene does take place within the balloon though um it does cut back and forth a lot uh to uh england and to um you know characters back home there's a little bit of like a narrative structure that's being done with with the time here and there um so you do have an opportunity to uh you know bring forth other environments to life in this movie. Um, is there one in particular that really, really stands out to you? I, I have to imagine that initial launch uh, sequence uh, was definitely an undertaking because it was primarily outdoors.
2: Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's funny, as you were saying that, I, I'd i almost forgotten about the launch. so i was thinking of a different set, which I'll tell you in a minute. But Oh, sure, yeah. It, it, it only, I, I mean, what, well, I suppose what I'm getting at is when we first took the movie on, we were told, "Ah, oh, you know, it's a couple of people in a basket. You know, it's not going to be very complicated." <laughs> you think, oh. And then, when you look back and reflect, you go, "Yeah, there were actually quite a lot of set builds and a lot of locations and a lot. It was it was quite an expansive film." So, the one I was thinking of was actually the choice of the location for the balloon factory, which was a beautiful old Georgian England um, rigging uh, shed, which Nelson's navy would have had their ships sort of restored in uh, like a kind of you know a shipyard. It's a big wooden structure. And as soon as I read that in a script, even though there's a couple of lines, I kept thinking that there's only one place we can do this and it it's this it's this huge Georgian hangar. So sure enough that's where we went and we dressed it and the place space lent itself perfectly to that um to that particular problem. So you know we we were fortunate to end up with a really big, expansive, beautiful space um had a location, but you're right the, in terms of the sort of key set piece, the, the ascent uh, the, the moment they leave Vauxhall Gardens is, is the key set piece of the movie in a way um, it has all the finery of Georgian England, oh, sorry, Victorian England and it has the um, you know, this, this this beautiful fairground that you see kind of life going on and we were trying to replicate as much as we could the idea of uh, of Vauxhall Gardens as it would have been at the time and this sort of spectacle of the day culminating in a balloon ascent um, so yeah there, there was there was a lot to design there and a lot a lot that we built and a lot that needed to be designed beyond just the parameters of the build you know where the VFX world helped to augment the design work that we had done and and to sort of really reflect that on screen in the end
0: oh. Okay, well, that's pretty cool. I I should have asked you this earlier, but uh, I was curious to know if your uh, experience as uh, someone working in the art department, as an art and set decorator, um, now that you're the uh, production designer, do you tend to be a little bit, I don't want to say like harder, but a little bit more meticulous with the work that goes into, uh, you know, a a film underneath your supervision now, or do you kind of let them do their own thing?
5: Oh, I think think you
2: develop... Both things I think you have an, a level of empathy for the people that are working for you because you've done every job that they're doing pretty much, and you know you know how long something takes you know how long something should take, so you kind of know when you need to sort of crack the whip a little bit, but at the same time, you also understand how to get the best creativity out of people, and often that is to firstly find the right people and then empower them to make good decisions for you. You know the old adage surround yourself with people that know more than you do is very true you know you want the best talents and the best people that can really bring something good to the table so in that sense i think the 20 odd year apprenticeship in the art department is a very good place to um gain some good experience learn from some real masters you know i've been lucky enough to work for designers of 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 greatest caliber there so i hope that by osmosis some of it's kind of rubbed off on me and you know and between david and i we can we can prevail. You know, the, uh, the the reviews thus far have been very positive for us. So maybe there is something in in that, some kind of alchemy that allows you to um, really bring your skills to bear. But it's it, it's certainly nice to be let off the leash. And uh, sure. And- yeah, implement your own vision for things
0: a little bit, yeah. Yeah, no, I hear that, totally. And I mean, I I think that this is a great technical showcase, um, you know, and especially, like you said, for your first uh, credit here as a production designer, it's work that you definitely should be proud of. I hope you're proud of it. It's really, really, really good stuff. Um, And it definitely has, like, a mixture of both realism and I don't want to say fantastical because I know that nothing in this is uh, what I would say is, like, uh, inaccurate, but it feels like almost like it's heightened reality, in a way. You know what I mean?
5: Yeah, I do.
2: I mean, I, I have to sort of turn to a, a, a lovely mantra that one of my mentors uses frequently, and uh, Stuart Craig, who I'd worked with on The Potters and several other things, he always used to use the expression, "You've got to keep one foot in reality," mm. and I suppose he was applying it to the magical world that we created, but. Actually, you can apply it to all sorts of things. You can almost do it the other way around and say, well, in a, in a world of reality, you can take a flight of fancy too, but perhaps as long as you keep one foot back in reality. So, you know, yes, there are fantastical elements to it. There's a magic to the sequence with the butterflies. There's there's something very beguiling about, you know, seeing it covered in snow and ice. Yeah. Well, you know, the truth is at 37,000 feet, there's not a lot of moisture. You might not get the ice that you really you know, you know want to see theatrically, but we're not, you know, it's not a documentary. It's a, it's a, it's a thing of beauty, hopefully, and something you don't really see stars at thirty-seven thousand feet either. But, you know, how far do you go with it? You know, you, you want to end up with something that that is engaging and beguiling and beautiful, and um, but also retain the plausibility.
0: Exactly, it's highly cinematic, and I think that that's what people will be in store for it when they see it. Um, Thank you so much for uh, taking a moment to chat with me. Final question before you go. Um, what's next? I mean, you know, like I said, got the one credit there. Pretty good work. I'm curious to know what's coming up.
5: Yeah, yeah. well, the, the infamous second
2: album. Uh, <laughs>
5: um,
2: we, we, we have a project that is looming, um, and it, 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 it looks set to be a very... Um, it's a, it's a musical and a, a very very exciting creative design piece it's it's just i haven't have yet to kind of firm it up
5: uh, okay david,
2: david and i are hoping to work together again we really enjoyed that process and you know it's an unusual pairing to have two you know two designers in a way but we we know we can make it work we did it with tom and we will again um so hopefully 2020 will be a, a year of a year of musical and hopefully you know color and spectacle as well so we, yeah that should it should be interesting. The future looking good.
0: Yeah, I'm excited. You just got me very pumped. <laughs> so, <laughs> good, <cool. laughs> can't wait to see it. Thank you so much, Christian. Really no appreciate worries. it.
5: Okay, actually, thanks a lot. Take care. I believe there are answers in the sky. Up there is where I have found the greatest happiness.
0: All right, everyone, I am being joined right now by Oscar winner Alex Byrne. Alex, you are the costume designer for The Aeronauts, and how are you doing? It's great talking with you.
6: I'm very well. I'm glad to be with you.
0: Absolutely. Um, Big, big fan of your work. You've done a lot of varied work over the years. Uh, In the Marvel uh, superhero uh, realm, you've worked on movies like Guardians of the Galaxy, Doctor Strange. You have also done a lot of period films as well, including Elizabeth, Elizabeth the Golden Age, which you won the Oscar for. uh, Last year's Mary Queen of Scots, and now the Aeronauts. I, I guess like the first question I kind of have to ask uh, in regards to uh, the body of work ultimately is do you have a preference there um, between the the different genres uh, as to what you prefer?
6: Um, no, I I enjoy I enjoy the differences, um, but actually nice. they're not. They all inform each other. It's um, my job as a costume designer is to help the director tell a story. And Mm
5: -hmm. I
6: think the only difference really is your source point of research. For period, you're Mm -hmm. looking into history. For the comic books, you start with a comic book. But from there on, it's about creating a visual world. And there is no difference. There's a great, you know, I love that I learn on every job I do. And um, there are things that I've learned on Marvel films that I've used in this film um, mm-hmm. And it it has a, you just build this body of knowledge that enables you to, to
5: deliver.
0: Yeah, I always imagine that with uh, costumes, it's, it's definitely a lot of uh, referencing the time period, looking at old photographs. There seems to be with the aeronauts, though, at, at least to me as a viewer, a sense of heightened reality, if you will, uh, where it does seem very steeped within history, but there also seems to be like this. Colorful extravagance to it. Um, can you can you comment a little bit on that? Because I do believe that that does play a little bit into some of the costumes that are used in the movie yeah. as well.
6: No, absolutely, you're right. Um, I felt that um, because of the subject matter, that there would be the I knew there would be these incredible skyscapes skysca- and and also just a really sharp uh, light that would define colors and the world and the sense of adventure of the journey. And I wanted the clothes to reflect that energy. And, you know, when you research 1860s, as you said, you know, you can look at paintings, you can look at portraits and photographs, and they've all aged with time. You can go to museums and you can look at uh, existing pieces of clothing. It's only really when you go to, markets and vintage stores and you you can buy pieces of victorian clothing that are are maybe rotten and can't be used but what you can do is you can pick apart the seam allowance and find fabric that has never seen the light of day and then you begin to understand the colors that they really use because they're not faded by time and they were not tame colors they were really vibrant some of the colors i found so i felt that i wanted to have this sense of energy and clarity of the colour whilst being true to period but to, to to bring that sense of energy into the film and also to use the color to help tell the story so for example we start off in a very monochrome world in the world in mm-hmm. East London and pick up on on the boy running through the streets and I talked to Tom and rather than making him just a, a street urchin we thought we'd make him a shoeblack, who were the boys who shine shoes who were actually licensed in London, and they had uniforms. So that was the beginnings of the little red coat. And I, as he then takes us into Vauxhall Gardens, which is the pleasure gardens of the time, I wanted this sense of, a bit like the fireworks that celebrate the balloon taking off, this sense of kind of um, an explosion of, of energy and excitement and colour. So as we go into Vauxhall Gardens, we gradually bleed through into this kind of this full on world of color and, and energy.
0: Yeah, no, and I think that definitely comes through completely, especially on that lift off sequence with all those extras there on yeah. set, all fully dressed. Yeah. <laughs> um and, and that must have been uh definitely a, a challenging day considering that for most of the production schedule it's two actors In one set with the same clothes.
6: (laughs) Well, except they're not the same clothes. I can tell you that Felicity um, had 19 versions of her flight suit. Wow. To to take us through all the the stunt and the harness and weathering of that flight suit. Because the the, the suit has to tell its own story of the journey that they've been on. So you can't... it's not just one suit, believe me.
0: <laughs> oh, I'm sure. You know, But there is an interesting journey, though, in the uh, costuming here with the two characters because as the journey goes on, uh, layers and layers of the costume do get stripped away. Mm, absolutely. And so um, I'm curious to know from a practicality standpoint in designing uh, the costumes for the two characters, uh, what, what level of thought uh, went into that? Um, because, you know, as the elements and uh, everything they come into contact with, uh, I just noticed that from where they start off at the beginning is definitely not what they're fully dressed in as uh, when we get to the end.
6: They the, what what they crash land in are the layers that are underneath what they start off in. It's all right. for for real. So I mean, there are there was a lot of thought in it. So you have Amelia in her circus performer costume, and if you look at that, it's got short sleeves. But under the short sleeves, you can see a lace that has got a kind of like a thermal knit. Running under it, and that is her thermal layer that she knows she's going to have on, under her flight suit that she's dressed on underneath her circus performer costume. So it is all—it's all there in in thought and in detail—to um, to to support the journey that they're going on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And is there a particular um, costume in the movie where you went through various iterations, uh, just kept on? this design, this color, no this length, and then finally just you finally got the final product that you were hoping for, but it took a couple of iterations to get there?
6: Um, I would say Amelia's flight suit because there is no there is no um photograph of a woman in a flight suit at at this time and it was um it's quite a, a difficult balance because it's about the practicality and it's about being true to the period. So I looked at a lot of um, riding habits at the time, which were um, women had their riding habits made by a gentleman's tailor. So I decided to take that kind of attitude on her flight suit that it was made by a man's tailor. Um, And then, you know, for a woman to wear trousers was a big statement, which is why she's not wearing them when she goes up in the the balloon to begin with. And finding the language for that, I looked at bathing suits, which is all about, uh, you know, propriety and modesty um and and we gradually evolved this flight suit, but also within the story, you have the the flashback sequence with Pierre, where you have what I call the Mark one flight suit, and it's as if Amelia, every journey she makes she's she's evolving and refining her flight suit, and then at the end of the film, we have the Mark three flight suit that she's taken on to another another level of practicality and waterproofing but in in developing this costume there were there were all the kind of the academic thought processes we also made prototypes for Felicity to rehearse in and that was very interesting because watching how she climbed in the balloon and where she held the ropes and how she held the ropes to secure herself and building in leather patches for friction rubbing um again you know it, it all feeds into into this this final garment
0: Yeah. No, yeah, you got to build it uh, for the the stunt work, ultimately. You can't have the uh, outfits uh, continuously ripping on set all the time. (laughs) No,
5: that would not be good,
6: no.
0: No, (laughs) absolutely not. Um, You know, you mentioned something earlier that uh, actually I was just, I was thinking about a little bit here. And, you know, we've seen a lot of movies take place in, you know, this time era of Victorian England. And I'm always very curious to know, you guys have a concentrated effort to try and make uh, the costuming stand out, uh, but also be period authentic in a way so that this way we're not looking at every single Victorian uh, era costume drama and thinking they all look the same. Mm, You know what I mean? Like they all have to be somewhat unique. Are you like consciously aware of that when you're uh, visiting this time period?
6: No, because um, what I try to do is to is to find clothes that help to tell the story
5: mm-hmm.
6: um so that's number one but you are also as a costume designer you have to you have to be quite practical you never have a limitless budget so for your yeah. background characters you are nearly always going to have to go to a costume house and use existing costumes so so you've got the, the kind of the dilemma of creating the world that you want for your principles, but they have also got to look like they belong to the world that is populated by your background. So so it's it's quite a juggle. And certainly for the background world, I would say most films of 1860s are using um, the same clothes because there is only a limited amount of stock. It's about choices of color and um, yeah. choices of accent, and 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 also the proportions in this period. How you know the the shapes of the crinolines and the skirts were changing really from 1858 through till 18 the late 1860s. So it's about the balance of the crinoline, where the where the volume is. Um, so you do have there are a lot of choices you can make, but you don't have total freedom. And I would say. No, I'm definitely not going how do we make this stand out from from another film because um I think that would be a pointless exercise. It's about how how can we how can we navigate this period to help us mm-hmm. tell the story but also be true to the time
0: of the story that's completely fair I I think maybe like the basis for like that question for me at least when I uh, saw the film at tell you right earlier this year was uh, the costume work and it really stood out to me personally um, and I think a large part of that was because of the use of color mm-hmm. um, some of it was just so striking at times and in contrast to uh, some of the monochrome um, look of the uh, of the time period uh in some of the production design work.
6: Yeah, no, I was very excited about the colour because I knew this I knew the light in the film would be extraordinary. So I thought yeah. it was a great way to match the energy. So for example, Antonia, um Amelia's sister when she's waiting to hear yeah, the
5: journey. Mm-hmm.
6: That that blue dress is based on the colour is based on a dress that is in the V and A museum. So it was a colour that that was very much used. But um, it's certainly a bold choice to put on camera and, you know, used in the wrong way would, would, would maybe not be happy, but I felt, you know, with, with the blue and the skies, that it was absolutely the the right time to use that color.
0: No, I, I agree. I, I, that was one actually, in, that was sticking out in my mind uh, when I was actually uh, thinking of that example right there that was so vivid on screen.
6: Yeah. And also, you know, Amelia, as a, she's a widow and, she, two years after her husband's death, she would still be in half mourning, so that means she's in gray or purple, um, mm-hmm. and it's very much a statement. She chooses to wear black at the ball, so everybody else is in quite light, pastel, frosty colors. Um, and again, you know, the purple that she wears to the Royal Society is a very, um, it's a very strong statement. And,
0: and speaking of which, when she uh, goes to the, uh, the liftoff of the balloon, and she's wearing her um, I, I don't know what to call it. I don't know what you guys called it, but I, I called it like her entertainer. Yeah. Her outfit. Circus
6: performer, her, yes, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Right. It, you know, that's obviously like, a, a, I would say maybe the loudest uh, outfit probably in the whole movie. Yeah. Uh, can you just talk about like the, the little intricacies that went into designing that one?
6: Yeah. I mean, the, the, the basis for that was that um, for a woman at the time to, to be an adventurer um was a, or an explorer or an, or do anything outside the realms of getting married and having children. For her, it would have been a, a massive balance between propriety and adventure and modesty and fame. And I read a lot of diaries by women explorers, written by women explorers, and they quite often chose to embrace the trivial um, so as to subvert potential charges of a modesty. And I think that's what Amelia was doing. So by being a circus performer, she entirely trivialized her role because if it was broadcast that Glacier was going to have a woman pilot, his journey, his whole expedition would have been a laughing stock. So so that's her choice, both to trivialise her role and also to to get funding for the journey by making by increasing the entertainment value. And so I wanted her her what I call a circus performer dress. To have a homemade quality, it's as if it's an evening dress that she's decorated and made herself. So it's got a slightly ad hoc feel, slightly homemade, but a great sense of fun and entertainment.
0: Excellent. That's awesome. Um, Your work can be seen coming up next in uh, Emma, which uh, I believe is being released in early 2020,
6: if I remember correctly. I think so, yes. I believe so, yeah.
0: Yeah. Anything else uh, coming up uh, beyond that for you?
6: Yes, I'm just about to start shooting on a film called The Mauritanian, directed by Kevin MacDonald.
0: Ooh, that's exciting. Yeah. Can't wait to see how that one turns out. Um, Like like I said, when we first started, big fan of uh, the work, big fan of uh, use of color and the design elements that you put into all the different genres that you're a part of. Thank you. And thank you so much for just taking a few moments to chat with us today. I really appreciate it.
6: Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Thanks for your
0: time. No problem. You have a nice day. You too.
5: Thank you. Bye.
0: Bye Bye-bye now. Hello everyone, you are listening to the Next Best Picture Podcast, I am your host Matt Meglia. You have heard us talk to various members of the crew for the film, The Aeronauts, but now I am being joined by its director, Tom Harper. Tom, how are you doing today? I'm good, thanks Matt. How are you? I'm excellent. I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for asking. Um, I want to first start off by asking you, uh, actually, in regards to uh, The Aeronauts, uh, this is quite, I think, a big leap uh, for you from uh, the previous uh, films that you have uh, given us. And I guess I want to start off um, not just talking about the uh, challenges that you might have faced uh, necessarily in the making of this, but if I remember correctly, actually, you developed a story with Jack, right?
1: Exactly. I I read this book called Falling Upwards by Richard Holmes, and it's a wonderful account of a whole variety of um, some of the early forays of uh, people into the skies and aeronauts and tales of adventure, if you like. Um, and I I was really sort of struck by and inspired by the the thirst for adventure and people kind of the extreme lengths that people went to to expand our knowledge of the world. Mm. So that was a starting point, and and then and so I had a look at some of these flights and started putting together a story in Jack's. Uh, uh, a friend a close friend and we we've, we've made about five projects together now yeah so he was a natural person to go to and so together we started talking about it and mapping out a story and he he wrote the, the script and away we went
0: do you find that that is something that we aren't doing as much anymore as a society uh exploring the world and in, in an effort to try and make it better
1: i no i i don't think so actually i think it's sometimes hard to see because i think that um you know if you if read the papers or the, the the news and there's 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 clearly a lot of challenges that we face and sometimes they can be the immediate uh the immediate stories but if you look beyond the headlines i do think again and again there are these amazing things that we are able to achieve when we work together and and so i hope in a way that that's in some ways what this film does is it reminds us to celebrate the kind of the wonderful things we can achieve, not just the problems we can get ourselves into.
0: Sure. No, I hear you with that one. Um, in terms of the story itself, the one thing that I've heard get brought up a couple of times is that um, the true story of that this is based on, um, it, it was originally, I, I believe, uh, two men. Uh, that went up in the balloon can you talk about from a story standpoint the decision to have both a male and a female uh go up into the sky in this story
1: sure um i suppose the honest truth is 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 the as i mentioned earlier is that this this, the film was actually inspired by a number of different flights and Mm. this book falling up falling upwards and so, even though there was one sort of spine, uh, one story that was kind of acts as the spine of it, which is these two people that went to thirty six thousand feet because that was a record breaking height. Right. You know, there were many things. There are many, many things in the film that are borrowed from different flights, and it's a sort of greatest hits, if you like. Oh, okay. Um. Of, of of. But the thing that people keep coming back to is the fact that we've made um, um one of the characters a, a, a female, and you know the the truth of it is that um, on the flight that that did happen, but they did go to 36,000 feet, and um, that was a, a great pilot called Henry Coxwell, actually, and James Glacier, but James Glacier took a, a measurement every two seconds, and that was partly what enabled him to to get the data to start predicting the weather, but it meant that they didn't really speak to each other on that flight, and so two men in the basket not speaking to each other doesn't necessarily make for the greatest movie, so we knew we were never going to make a, a sort of documentary about that one flight, and we wanted to... I suppose just sort of capture the essence of that of early flight and the kind of sense of adventure. Um, and that's what we were lo- looking to do. And, and that enabled us to look further afield for another for another character. And there was this fantastic early female aeronaut called Sophie Blanchard, who mm-hmm. was a sort of firecracker of a woman and she was she led a fireworks and did acrobatics and uh, and was a very instinctive character and sort of very sort of very different from Jane's Glacier. And so we thought, Well, if you took some like that and put her into the basket with James then you you could watch the the, the sparks fly and that overnight a minute could be really interesting and i suppose but it's also fair to say that you know that the that the, the, the fact that you know it didn't we didn't change the that pilots were female at the beginning it was kind of born out of dramatic um trying to find the best dramatic uh, storyline rather than any sense sort of political correctness but having said that it was the opportunity to put a, a strong interesting female character in the basket is a great thing. And, and the fact that we, that, 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 Presented that opportunity, I'm really pleased about.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely, and you know the proven chemistry between Felicity Jones and Eddie Redmayne from their uh, projects together in the past. Um, definitely, I'm sure aided in that. You knew, um, t- sure that they could work pretty well together here, and I think that carries over greatly on screen uh, in the relationship that these two characters have. Can you talk about um, what it was like bringing the two of them on board?
1: Yeah, I mean it was great, you know, to have um, two such. Gifted actors who already have this great working relationship and who trust each other and who sort of um, dare each other to take risks is a really wonderful thing. And they were very generous in kind of folding me into that relationship. But it, I suppose it just gives us a head start. Um, um, but yeah, no, and I hope they carry on working to each, with each other again and again because. Um, and are magnificent together.
5: Yeah,
0: no, definitely. And uh, in terms of now the technical aspects of the aeronauts, as I was saying before, it's a very, very big leap forward, I think, from what we have seen from you before. A lot of visual effects work, a lot of complexity in regards to it being within a confined space. Um, can you talk about what, for you, in the uh, pre-production phase, you saw as the biggest opportunity or challenge that you had to face in making the aeronauts?
1: Right from the very beginning, I wanted to make it feel as real as possible so that the audience was able to kind of have the visceral feeling of what... as is, is, is close to that visceral feeling of what flight or what it would have been like for those, those characters. So right from the beginning, our, my approach was always, well, how much of it can we do for real? And if we can't do it for real, how can we make it as real as possible? So in the early stages of pre-production, we were like, okay, well, can we build a, a period 19th century gas balloon? Turns out that we could. Can we put our calf in it? turns out we could. Can we fly? So it turns out that we could actually do quite a quite a lot of it. So, you know, we did, for example, film with Eddie and Felicity, three thousand feet in the sky above English countryside. Felicity did climb out of the basket and sit on a hoop again, three thousand feet in the air. Um and then for the sections that we couldn't do for real, we just tried to use that experience and take it into the studio and, and recreate it and and then and then in addition to that, sort of apply as much of the physical conditions as possible. For example, we froze the studio to below freezing to kind of recreate the kind of the, the the some of the temperatures of the upper upper atmosphere. We um um we Eddie and I went on a sort of hypoxia training on this Ministry of Defense Air Base in in the UK where they put us in a decompression chamber and Took us to equivalent of 30,000 feet and starved us of oxygen hmm. and you know all those things were sort of either informed of visual storytelling or, or the performance and and hopefully that really comes across in, in, in the way that the that people experience the, the movie.
0: Sure. No, I, I think it definitely does. I know for myself, when I uh, saw the film at its world premiere at the Telluride Film Festival, especially when we get to the uh, third act and you uh, get to the scenes where it's incredibly cold at that level of altitude, um, I could really, really feel that coming across, not just in the performances, but also in two and how you guys uh, set dressed. Balloon to convey just how freezing uh, it was. It was it was very immersive, Um, and I know that word gets used uh, a lot lately. But no, I I think that you your decision to shoot a lot of it practically and for as real as possible, I think it pays off uh, very well.
1: Great, thanks.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Can you uh, talk to me a little bit about? you know, being that this is a, a big period piece, I know that before you have worked on um, acclaimed uh, d- dramas on television, such as War and Peace, uh, you also do Peaky Blinders. Um, do you like to stick within uh, a period setting, or do you prefer to do um, more modern films? I, I know you did Wild Rose uh, recently, big fan of that film, by the way. Really, really loved it. Um, wh- what, do you, Where do you feel most comfortable operating in?
1: I, I don't know, really. It's not something I actively think about when when looking for a project i suppose i just look for stories that excite me
5: mm-hmm.
1: uh, or i think are in, in some way important or um um will uh be interesting to explore uh, and and something and, and that's as wide as 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 i guess my taste in movies so where and the, and because you know you always look for the best story sometimes that comes in the past and sometimes it comes in the present sure so there's no sort of there's no sort of strategy or kind of particular strand of thinking behind it is just looking for the best, most exciting story.
0: Well, you know, in terms of the next best exciting uh, story for yourself, um, I'm sure you have a lot of projects that are coming up, uh, you know, because like I said, you've had a very prolific uh, couple of years now um, with some good success as well. Um, the thing that, you know, gets asked a lot nowadays, I find that if anybody does anything related to visual effects, I have to ask the question. I'm going to ask the question. Do you have any desire to want to branch into uh, franchise filmmaking, the big blockbusters, and explore a little bit more of that visual effects realm? Uh,
1: being honest about it, n- not really. Okay. I'd never say, n- but never say never. Of course. I mean, it sort of just depends on, on what it is and the what's and the why's, but it's not something I'm certainly I'm actively l- looking for. But um, but yeah, you know. Obviously there are some some great mo- movies like that and it you always just look for something that connects with you. So so not actively looking, but never say never.
0: Sure. No, absolutely. And uh just from a fun anecdotal uh standpoint, uh what would you say is the thing uh with the aeronauts that you're the most proud of or maybe a happy uh time on set that you want to share?
1: Um, I guess there's two things that spring to mind. Mm-hmm. The first is is just the way that that Felicity embraced the physicality yeah. of the performance. And there's a scene where she where she has to climb back into the balloon. I don't think it ruins too much by saying that.
0: No, no, no. That scene is thrilling.
1: <laughs> and there's an intertwining of the physical and the emotional that I think she does just so beautifully, and then there's a scene with her and Eddie where they bounce off each other. And I think that's probably my favorite moment in, in the movie. But then also just from a practical point of view, you know, building a nineteenth century period balloon filling it with uh, gas light in there and taking off in it. It was a something that I shall always remember. So that was pretty, pretty
0: wonderful. And you took us to the stars and beyond. So <laughs> Thanks, <Matt. laughs> I really, really appreciate it. No, it was a fun ride. Absolutely. Um, so this is uh, the Aeronauts. It is being released by Amazon Studios and theaters on December 6th. And it will then be available on Amazon Prime Video Worldwide on December 20th. 2019. Uh, Tom, you know, I would just love to hear, uh, just after that little plug there, you know, what are your thoughts on the fact that, you know, you'll have this theatrical run, it'll be streaming shortly thereafter. Do you see it as an advantage for more people to see the film in this age of streaming?
1: It's a good question. I, I think there are pros and cons to it. You know, I think we're we're living in a kind of rapidly evolving time in terms mm-hmm. of the film and television industry, and there's lots of incredibly exciting about it. Um, I, I, I do hope that people seek Aaron Ross out in the cinema because it's a, it's a great cinematic uh, experience and it's kind of got some great big visuals that are one point and there's something lovely about the kind of shared experience of going to the cinema and seeing a movie that makes you gasp and sit in there and your seats but at the same time it's, it's fantastic that people have that choice and yeah. and you know that for Christmas all around the world people are going to be able to sit down with their family and watch the movie so you know it's it's uh, it's great that there's that people are going to get to see the film in, in all sorts of different ways.
0: Yep, nope, the choice will definitely be there and for the right reasons that you said. It's a very, very big, big, big screen movie filled with a lot of thrilling and stunning visuals uh, that I think people will definitely get their money's worth if they go seek it out in a theater. If not, though, like you said, over the holiday season, it'll be available to stream from the comfort of people's homes. Tom, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, man. Okay. All right, have a good one and best of luck to you.
1: You too. A lot. Take care. back.